welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome to the Common Bridge. It is April the 11th, and I think we're, what, Rich, I think three or three or four weeks into the COVID, uh, the biblical <laughs> COVID um, panic, not to make a pun on Easter weekend. But anyway, um, what do you see out there, and what should we be looking at? And, for, and, and how are you, by the way? We're in different places. Well, Brian, uh, good to hear your voice. And yes, we're doing fine out here. Um, I like to joke that uh, 42 years ago, we were just a couple with a black dog. And today we are a couple with a black dog. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> great. Know, it's different black dog. Um, <laughs> and there's been quite a bit of, of life uh, since that time. Uh, we are doing fine, eating well, you know, enjoying walks and, and the like here. Yeah. Um, you know, I've thought, had a lot of time to think about the common bridge and speak with a lot of folks on the phone and through Zoom meetings and other correspondence and, you know, dive into some books and columns and the like. And, you, you know, Brian, I've had the privilege of visiting all 50 states, served clients in our major cities and the smallest towns and everything in between. And, I've often said that my firsthand experience is that America is populated with generous and compassionate people. And what we've seen on display since this crisis began only reinforces that. And to that, I've got to add courage and determination and innovation. I mean, GM and Ford are making ventilators. Other manufacturers are like, we're going to pivot. We're going to make personal protective equipment. Oh, it's cool. It's like World War II stuff all over again. It's great. Yeah, and, and when you talk about the heroes of that time, we have heroic health care providers. Big time, They're yeah. facing, you heard Brian Peters last week, mm -hmm. uh, facing the situation head on. Massive changes to plant, equipment, personnel, protocols at great cost to their institutions, as well as to the individuals, but they're doing it for community, for their neighbors, for fellow citizens. And, and of course, look, we also have some of the same bad actors at work, the smears from the political adversaries, deliberate misinformation, um, as Mort Krim referenced, the news as entertainment, partisan websites and the like, you know, running hit piece after hit piece, trying to inflame the hysteria. People trying to get down to, if only this one thing occurred or if this one thing didn't occur, this would be a whole different outcome. Frankly, that's just nonsense. These are complex situations that we're going to react to based on the best information at the time. And upon uh, retrospect at some point in the future we can begin sorting it out right um, but this nonsense of looking for villains at this point uh, is just counterproductive well you, you know when this when this finally gets over with or at least calms down there's going to be a lot of finger pointing and certainly during an election cycle it's going to be amazing finger pointing um, 
Do you see that kicking up prematurely? Do you think that we're all behaving so far on that? And this, <laughs> you know, I'm talking more social media than media right now because we know where media is going with us. Well, well, there are people that never give it up. And I, look, you just have to look past it. Just ignore it. You know what they're going to post. You know where they're going. Yeah. You know, they, they don't really care and having a, a discussion. That's just, I don't know, maybe that's part of American life, at least for now. But you know, this common bridge was set up not to engage in the partisan bickering, uh, which is leading no place, mm-hmm. uh, but to deal with policy. And what we've seen exposed during this crisis is our failures to address infrastructure, workforce, and health insurance needs. Now, you know, everybody's heard 16 million people are suddenly out of work. Mm-hmm. And, and guess what? That means 16 million families and their communities are about to have a really horrible firsthand understanding of how ridiculous it is to link health insurance with employment. And we've talked a lot about health care um, and the hows and whys of those policies in other podcasts. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that fissure is something that we've known about, we've ignored, we've politicized it, we've swept it under the rug, we've oversimplified it, and now it's coming home to roost. And, and similarly, Brian, look, when you look at the public health matters, there are still way more unknowns than knowns about COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, look, we don't have good data today. The testing is incomplete. Oh, it's really, yeah, that's been a, a bad, we don't look so good worldwide on our, our ability to test this. Right. And, and right now we don't even really know who to test because mm-hmm. now there's data kind of creeping out that might mean we don't know how long this virus can live in a person undetected. Mm-hmm. And I was reading further that after treatment, it may still be around so the person goes from being asymptomatic and carrying the, devi- the virus to having an outbreak to seemingly being cured and being tested and still have it. That, so that's horrifying. That's horrifying. It, it, we, we, we just don't know. And so when we're looking at the data, we don't know if the 320 million people in the United States, how many people have it because we haven't tested them. And similarly, we really don't know yet exactly how many people are dying from it, because as you saw, Dr. Burks, who is a very credible person, Mm -hmm. said, if a person passes away, no matter what the cause, and if they test positive, apparently even post-mortem for the virus, we're counting that as a coronavirus death, which is not illogical at this point. But eventually, that will get uh, sorted out. And we already, I believe, have a a hypothesis that complications and comorbidities are really important about how a person might react uh, to this virus. But we're really at the front end of this. Mm -hmm. And, and, yeah, we're at the front end of it, and we're going to see it, I think, tail off. And In fact, we are seeing it, and it appears to have some seasonal properties, not unlike influenza. But that doesn't mean that when it comes back around again in the fall, 
that we could be in the same boat. And it, it's going to be really interesting to see how much we learned and the efficiencies or inefficiencies that we've experienced the last few weeks to see how they play out <laughs> during during the, the election cycle. Um, it, it could be very interesting. Yeah. Uh, interesting is... Uh probably high on the list of words that I'd use to describe it. Right. And, and look, trying to stay on the, the policy reactions that we've had. Data today would suggest that the locking down the commerce and limiting movement with the quarantines and uh, stay-at-home orders is having an effect. Right, yeah. Um, and look, I also know there's a school of thought out there that says this virus blooms like algae and then goes away. And here, look at the data from China, if you can believe that. And here, look at the data from Italy. Again, we just don't know, but it appears that that policy of quarantine and distancing and hand washing and now masks is having positive effect. But make no mistake, look, it, it's pushing us into a depression-level economic crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that is the least of our worries in that hyper focus on economic data is silly that the economy doesn't exist for people to serve the economy is the means of which people obtain the goods and the services that they want and and the data is just an output of measuring you know how we are distributing those goods and services and with all due respect not everybody sees it that way and i think that's that's a very um that's a great point. People don't look at it that way, unfortunately. And right now, what we are when I use the term depression level, you know, let's not pull any punches. You can't take 16 million workers out of the workforce abruptly and think that things are the same. And look, things are dropping in price. I paid a dollar 43 cents for gasoline yesterday. It's amazing. Inflation <laughs> and, adjusted. That's I mean that's 60 cents in the 70s. I mean it's 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 incredible. It is and and like <laughs> one thing made me chuckle someone said, "Wow, it's like being a teenager again. Gas is cheap and I'm grounded." So <laughs> there, 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 that's there great. was that. <laughs> but but look, once deflation gets into an economy, it's really difficult to remove it. You know, if I'm going to go out and buy a new lawnmower and I'm going to buy a real fancy one and so pay $600 or something for it, and I think maybe hey, it's going to be 550 if I wait for a year, I might make the old one go better. And another, and more people do that. Well, now the lawnmower factory says, hey, we don't have enough sales. We've got to lay people off. Well, now the people that were working there are going home and saying, you know what, I've got to cut back my spending. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to buy things that... Uh, I might otherwise buy. And that's the danger of deflation getting into an economy. But in any case, look, in, in, in some of the policy responses, I think it's, it's been fascinating. In 2008, at, when we had the uh, financial crisis mm-hmm. and that led to the Great Recession, the United States policy approach really was to reliquify the country from the top down. Uh, on a selective basis, some commercial banks were saved and others were, you know, pushed over the edge. The same with investment banks, you know, Lehman Brothers mm-hmm. uh, went under. Uh, there were forced mergers that went on. There was a restructuring of the automobile industry from manufacturing through dealerships. And what happened in the meantime is that people on the other side of that great recession, good people that were going to work, meeting their mortgage payments and such, they lost their jobs, they lost their homes, they lost their credit rating, they lost their health insurance. 
So you look at the policy response this time, the attempt is to liquefy the economy at the consumer level. So you look at things like enhanced unemployment of $600 a week, paying companies to not lay off workers, stimulus payments parachuted into people's homes. If these programs are effective and if commerce can begin again, then because people have been resourced, they will be spared the loss of their homes. If they make their mortgage or rent payment, their credit ratings are going to remain intact. They'll be called back to work to be gainfully employed, and it won't be perfect. And we're still going to be left with this notion of how do we get people on health care. So now we're replacing their paycheck, but they also lost their health insurance. So, you know, things we could do quickly would be like dropping the age for Medicare eligibility mm -hmm. or broadening Medicaid, you know, the, the same way that unemployment benefits have been enhanced or doing both. Sure. Okay. But, but look, the loss of the job and losing the health insurance is a, I don't know what the right analogy is. It's a, it's an iceberg coming up. It's a tsunami of need, but that is an element for the security and relieving the worry of American people. I think that the approach of reliquifying households is a great idea. It's creeping along in implementation. I, the systems weren't ready for it. But we also got to make sure that we get after that health insurance piece, which should not be linked to employment. Okay. Well, all right. So if we look at this as a football game, you know, at, at best, we're at halftime. You know, we're talking about maybe nationally this is peaking right now. In, in your view, was the quarantine or the stay-at-home orders, was that the right policy response? We, we don't have the, um, the luxury, if it were, if you will, um, of being really hyper-aggressive like they were in Asia. Did, do you think we did this right so far? I think based on the best information that was available, um, yes. Uh, the travel restrictions, the stay-at-home orders, the, all of those are the appropriate response based on the information, and it appears to be working. And, and, and you know, Brian, just to comment a little bit in that I've, I've done a little bit of digging when folks want to hold up, well, look what this country did. Well, other countries sent in the military to enforce a quarantine. They did, yeah. And, and I can't imagine how this country would react if the, you know, 82nd Airborne came in and invaded Manhattan. That would be something. And and there's others, uh, you know, South Korea, which, you know, of course, had their issues with flu epidemics in the past. Their citizens had to wear wristbands that showed your location and your temperature. And then we've had the contact monitoring that would know everybody that's gotten within six or 12 feet of Brian Kruger. And, uh, you know, Singapore had cameras outside of residence stores. I mean, basically everything in Singapore is observed with cameras and centrally monitored. I don't think America would stand for that. And can you imagine some of the things that's been said about some of our elected leaders? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, can you imagine January 18th, President Donald J. Trump says, effective immediately, all Americans have to have a have to link a doorbell camera to a national grid so we can see where you are. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, good, yeah, good I, luck I, with that one, right? <laughs> yeah, but but look, speaking of of the quarantine of the stay at home order, I think a policy we need to start developing is an exit plan. Mm -hmm. And 
I learned something really early in my business career from observation that it was more difficult to get out of a business than it was to get into it. Interesting. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I watched a guy, a hardworking guy, owned three dry cleaners, was ready to retire, had a heck of a time selling it. That applies to successful enterprises at all sizes. Mm -hmm. A friend said to me yesterday, he goes, hey, you know, marriage is a lot easier than divorce. And I'm like, well, there's another good example yeah, of something, yeah. something easy to get in than it is exiting it. Yeah. And and look, this does not look like there's going to be a day where we just throw a switch and, okay, everybody back to your places, stay-at-home order's over. I, that would be A, silly, B, nobody would go back to their places. If my governor or a governor asked me what to do, I'd say, look, get a, for lack of a better term, blue ribbon quarantine exit panel mm -hmm. and keep it small, eight, 10 people at the most, represent education, local government, business, consumers, obviously public health and healthcare providers, mm -hmm. and have a facilitator that's got the power of the gavel so that we get clarity and the, the blue ribbon panel would be charged with making recommendations to the governor or the governors about which parts of the economy could be safely switched on based on the current conditions. So, so for example, today in our state of Michigan, apparently landscapers can't legally work. And I'm like, come on, the, mm -hmm. if you had a one or two person crew and the crew arrived in separate vehicles and they had masks on and they were working, you know, 50 yards away from other people, it seems to me that even a trial period, let's, you know, in, in Southwest Michigan counties, let's let landscapers go back to work and let's see if we have any further outbreaks. But Rich, don't you think that that, um, that decision was based more on class sensitivity than anything else? I mean, surely golfing is not, it is a, is a nice walk around activity. You're hitting a ball around and you're not near anybody. But, um, well, I heard this out of Pennsylvania that it wasn't so much about the golfing itself, but you didn't want to show a society that, Hey, you know, if you have enough money or if you're, you know, if, if you're of certain class, you can be out and enjoying this a lot more than if you don't. And, um, I've heard that from several levels now that landscaping comes into that as well. People getting their lawns taken care of and such looks bad for the people who can't. Can you comment on that at all? You know, certainly that could be a cause. And you know, certainly if I'm golfing, I'm not near anybody because I'm going to try to find my, <laughs> my ball in places. <laughs> like, so Shell isn't going to call you up to do a, um, a Tiger Woods, Rich Helpy, um, Shell World no, of Golf? <laughs> it's, and actually, I, I, I always said I didn't want to play golf. And then I, set of circumstances, started playing for the uh, social aspects. And I found a lot of balls. Uh, when I was golfing, because I was on parts of the course that nobody had gone to for years. Because <laughs> I hit a ball there. Uh, but, a golf archaeologist. Yeah, exactly. So, But anyway, on a serious matter, I think if there's a, a legitimate public health issue, uh, because, you know, you take, let's use a golf course as an example. If you have four people going out in the morning to tend the greens, mm -hmm. and now you got four people in a vehicle, you know, while the person that cuts the grass on the fairways would be delighted to be working and earning a paycheck yeah. uh, for their rent and such. I don't think they want to go home and say, uh, yeah, you know, I, I was with a dozen people that were employed by the golf course. We saw 
whatever the number is, 100 people golfing today. And so, you know, the, the exposure going up, just using the arithmetic of the number of people you're exposed to, is the risk worth it for a golf game? Mm-hmm. And, and this is where I'm saying is that, that, that we can start to look at things, you know, like landscaping, a person that may be physically unable to cut their own grass or plant their own flowers. Yeah. And if it, if it can be done in a safe manner, you, you know, with, again, proscribed restrictions, you know, must arrive in single cars, cannot be within 50 yards of anyone else, mm-hmm. must be wearing a mask. Those are things that you can start looking at generating the economy. And, you know, one crisis that we're going to have, and I'm saying this tongue in cheek, is the demand for haircuts. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised the black, go, yeah, the black market hasn't popped up with that one yet. I, I really am amazed. Right. And I've been blessed with genetics that does. I'm not a candidate for this, but there are a lot of people checking the color of their roots. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I am stopping there because I'm not naming any names <laughs> at this Same point. Here. <laughs> hey, listen, not to jump another topic on this, but a few weeks ago, you had a great idea. And I, I'm hearing it talked about in this fourth round of incentive or aid package, and that's infrastructure. You had mentioned that, you know, now's a good time with interest rates down, borrow some money, get some people out to work and actually use this to help boost the infrastructure issue that we have. Can you speak to that at all again for us? I am. I'm enthusiastic about that idea even more so than before. The single barrier, by the way, is who gets the credit. And I don't know if you've seen these television ads, but a lot of the policy responses were a collaboration between the uh, Treasury Department, you know, of the administration, both houses of Congress to push out some, I think, pretty good legislation. Mm-hmm. And now, now we have one party running ads that they did it. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. No. Like, no, and, and, lay off that for a while. <laughs> all right. Exactly. No victory right, laps. <laughs> right. Yeah. We, we, we need you all to put down the partisan politicking and, and get to policy. So look, infrastructure right now, the Treasury could go out and issue 50-year or even 100-year bonds. And we look at the bridges and the roads and the airports and the communication infrastructure. And now, exposed, how about adding in repatriating of essential manufacturing from China and, and other places, mm-hmm. you know, like like medicine and personal protective equipment. And let's bring that back on shore. That's infrastructure. That would be great. And, and how about, you know, those smaller hospitals that have been closing? Seems we need to look at that as well. Mm-hmm. And by the way, in that CARES legislation, there is funding for hospitals. And I think this is going to give us a pause in what we've been doing to the design of our healthcare delivery system. And Brian, as we pull the layer back as this crisis hits, there's another item in that infrastructure that needs upgrade, and that's information systems. I don't know if you've seen the the news, but I've been having fun with this one. New Jersey and other states are calling out for COBOL programmers. COBOL is spelled C-O-B-O-L. Mm-hmm. All right, this is, a look, an ancient programming <laughs> language, and it was designed for a technology called general purpose computers whose roots began in the Eisenhower administration <laughs> in 1959. And so we've been through the era of, you know, single-use computers when you change computers throughout the hardware and software to general purpose computers, the mainframe, through client server, through internet one, through now what we can do on apps. And our unemployment programs are still done in COBOL. 
which is where I began my career a long time ago. And, and because of the, the way I had morphed that technical background into businesses, the last time I actually wrote code, I think it was an interface I was writing you know, it was like 35 years ago. And, and, I'm, and I'm like actually toyed with the idea, do I head out to New Jersey and see if it's like riding a bike or is my brain not going to be able to concentrate that way? Yeah. Would you have to grow a mullet first? You have to get your old stuff back going. Oh, no, no, no. But back, back then, okay. I know that they've done it differently this time, but the way we wrote programs there, you'd go way into the night cause you'd get on a roll. There you go. It's, and so you'd be fueled by caffeine, <laughs> junk food and rock and roll. Yes. And, and now the thought of it, I think I'd need a really long nap and I'd be sick to my stomach, so I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but look, on a serious matter, if we're going to look at infrastructure, there are cheaper, better ways to uh, deal with the technology. And let's do it. Yeah, um, why not, right? <laughs> yeah. now's, now's a good time. Everything's Everybody hit the pause button, so why not make the best use of it? Exactly. So there's a good policy response would be infrastructure. And again, I'd broaden it beyond the obvious of the roads and bridges and the like to hospitals, to repatriating essential manufacturing, to upgrading information systems. Mm -hmm. Now, what about uh, like occupational hazard? Uh... I am really, really glad that you brought that up because while we've told a lot of people to uh, stay home, there are people that have gone into the breach for us. There are police officers, firefighters, EMTs, physicians, hospital workers, and, and hospital workers, it's the medical people but it's also the people cleaning the rooms. It's people that are transporting patients. It's people that are greeting you and making sure the parking lot's clean. Grocery, farmers, meatpacking plants. I, I know I'm leaving people out of there, but we need to step up because right now there are laws on the books. It's presumptive coverage based on line of duty that covers firefighters for certain types of cancers. So this workers insurance for the firefighters, firefighters, if they get, you know, upper respiratory diseases or certain cancers, brain cancers, uh, melanomas, leukemia, lymphoma, yeah, uh, yeah, asbestos, yeah, sure. Michigan has a little part of their law that says they can exclude the benefits if there's been a consistent use of tobacco. But otherwise, it's presumed if you've got one of those things that came from your job, because the firefighters are going into places that are burning and there's so many chemicals and things uh, that it's just unavoidable. Sure. And if we applied that same kind of thinking, if we said, look, a truck driver, a hospital transport person, a doctor, a police officer that contracts COVID-19, it's occupational. And so fully covered testing and treatment and follow-up care and mental health coverage, mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I think you see a spike um, in that, yeah. Exactly. So there would be a great policy matter would be occupational hazard coverage for frontline workers. We owe these people a, a, a debt, and, and we, we need as a society to step up for them. I agree. You're starting to hear the libertarians uh, chirp up some, and and this time, sometimes I look at what they what they say as being a little extreme. 
some of it, though, especially after here in Michigan, anywhere where we are, you start to listen to them a little bit. Like, how how much can can our democracy take? You know, of some of this limitation, and do you think that there'll be a kickback on that or a, or a pushback? Uh, how do you see that playing out? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, and I I think that we have a uniting set of circumstances, a threat of a disease, and we have a set of united personal responses, i.e. stay at home. And it's not the risk that you're putting on yourself. It's the risk to others, which is, you know, putting others ahead of yourself, I think is a key to a a happy life. Mm -hmm. Our democracy absolutely depends on fair and free elections with broad participation. Well, yeah, well, okay, that's that's a great topic then. So what do you think about the you know, the voting with an app? You must have some opinions on how this would go. Would it work? Would it not work? Yeah, absolutely. We have the technology today for voter identification, and, and we have the technology to make it as easy as possible for people to vote, whether it's in person uh, with uh, uh, a, a instant picture ID mm-hmm. and validating that that uh, they haven't shown up someplace else with cross-matching facial recognition. There's We have methods for absentee voting. And, uh, you know, those are commonplace at this point. And also, you know, we do a lot of business with electronic tokens. Again, very commonplace, very inexpensive. Sure. Y- you know, we, we've just had the census go around and we have a way to lock that down with a code. All of it our banking, not... people have no problem doing their banking and their finances. They trust that within their app on their phone in most cases. I don't see how they can't take the next step and say, you know, we could do this for voting. We really could. Absolutely. And if people are worried that there's someone else at the computer or on the uh, mobile device packing the ballot, guess what? You turn on the camera and along with the ballot, comes a photo of the person that is making the entry. You know, Uber has that Mm -hmm. so that Uber drivers can't just say, hey, you know what, I'm busy this weekend and let their brother-in-law drive their car because randomly Uber will make the driver look at the app and make sure that it is their qualified driver. So this is a real common bridge moment for you, Rich, because I I see a problem, right? So I see the left not wanting to identify their voters so much on this, so there'd be some pushback. And then I see the right not wanting this many voters involved with it. Um, where do we find, where do we get in the middle with that? You see what I'm saying, right? You see the left folks going, well, you know, I, I want them to be able to vote, but not tell you who you are. That's, that shouldn't matter. Where the right is going to push back the other way. Well, this is where they're both going to be foiled by data. Yeah. Um, and so let me see if I can draw this parallel. We talked just a minute ago about the lack of data, why we don't know exactly how many cases of COVID-19 there are because we don't test for them. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know how much voter fraud there might be because we don't test for it. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're using a voter ID method of, you know, decades ago. And by the way, it's the same thing with voter suppression. There, now, you can have anecdotes uh, both for voter suppression and you can have anecdotes for voter fraud, but that's not data. Mm-hmm. So if we have good voter ID and we make voting easier 
it should satisfy those who think fraud is the problem because, hey, look, uh, you know, this person is submitting this token with their vote, with their photo. There you go. That's a good vote. But also on the voter uh, suppression, folks that, are, that think that's the issue should be happy because there is an easy way that's universal. And by the way, easy ways to make sure that person can participate in the democracy. Mm-hmm. I think, again, you've heard me say this before. I, I think it's turnout elections bother me. I, I think it's really incumbent on somebody that wants to be in a responsible position to win the votes in their voting jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you what do you say to the folks? And I've heard this already. It's called the Kardashian effect. And that is uh, a Kim Kardashian who has seven million followers uh, says, just vote for this person. And those seven million followers aren't necessarily the most educated group. And um, <laughs> there's some people saying, look, part of our democracy, and it always has been, is to be interested enough to get up, go over to your elementary school where you're voting um, um, station is vote show up in person show your ID show who you are and make those choices <laughs> whereas the Kardashian effect is well okay kink <laughs> you know that, that there's a lot of people going to be voting with uh, uh, with no um, background or, or thought process into it if that's the way they want to cast their vote that's their right cast their vote that You're right. way. It, as I was saying it, I was I was realizing I was echoing something from the 40s on, you know, only smart people can vote. <laughs> but right. I, I've, that, I've heard that, this. Right. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to have poll taxes. Right. You don't want to have poll exams. And, you know, let's say that this Kardashian effect is really the issue that we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. There's social media is pretty easy to get to. Um, people have other friends. And your friend can tell you, you know, hey, I think voting the way Kardashians tell you to do is a good idea or not so good idea. And and people can make their decision about how they want to cast their vote. And Brian, look, you know we've had uh, name recognition votes cast, happens every day. Mm-hmm. And we have single issue votes cast every day. And that's the beauty of a democracy. How I might reach my decision, it, it may be different than the way you reach yours. So, you know, we've covered a lot today, but... Uh... Is, are there anything, anything in closing thoughts? Uh, I don't want to run you all day, but man, this has been a good conversation. But any closing thoughts that you would have as we close out this week, as we head into the middle of, of April? Yeah, it's a little more philosophical than policy-wise, uh, and it's certainly not political and certainly not partisan. But I had the thought that maybe America just needed a timeout. And and I don't mean like the timeout that you give your four-year-old, I but more akin to, you know, it's halftime at a football game or it's a period intermission in hockey. Mm-hmm. You know, we are a country that used to have stores closed on Fridays after Thanksgiving. And then it turned into, hey, Black Friday. And then it's like stores are open at eight. And we've all seen the video of really terrible behavior. And then it's like, oh, you know what? We're going to open at midnight. And then last Thanksgiving, it's like, Stores are really people are going to leap up from the one universal holiday we've got and race out to buy whatever the hot toy is or something like that. It's it's so maybe we and now I I saw a uh, an ad. One of the grocery chains said, "Hey, we're going to be closed on Easter." Like that was news. Yeah, yeah, that's cool too. Really. And so I look, I think that we're going to, as we exit this, there's going to be a different look in the economy. I think something I've been talking about for years that 
we don't know really what the demand is for office space, but guess what? It's not going up. <laughs> yeah. We've had less pollution because we've been moving around less. We've been enjoying meals at home. And I spoke with a fellow yesterday who tells me that he has a long-standing business friend who's in the jigsaw puzzle business. Okay. And <laughs> so and guess what is selling like the proverbial hotcake now? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. Right. We did one. Yeah. Exactly. So when you think about now meals at home and things like basic baking materials like flour selling at all-time highs, are people going to exit this quarantine and say, gosh, they've got so much pent-up demand and they've got the, you know, hopefully the spending power from the um, policy responses. Are we going to go race out to that breakneck pace again? Or are we going to say, you know, I really thought about what's important in terms of time and where I spend, you know, who I spend time with. And, you know, maybe that Scrabble game with my kids and the home cooked meal that maybe is a little better than us racing off for the next hit of entertainment. Yeah, well, folks, there it is. Rich Helpy, the uh, his glasses always half full. That that's a that's a really good way to look at this. I agree with all those points. We have again a country of compassionate and generous people, and I just want to say thanks to the frontline heroes. You know yeah. who you are. Thank you. Yeah. Rich, thanks a lot for your time. I know you're busy, and I know that you're also um, enjoying this time, and, and, and you should. That that last uh, take on spending time with your family and how that rinses off, it's, it's just it's powerful. So um, we'll see you next week, and um, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for the Common Bridge and everything you do for it. Brian, always a pleasure. Take care. So long. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.